This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Inch by inch, row by row, gonna make this garden grow. All it takes is a rake and a hoe and a piece of fertile ground. I'm not a big gardener. I live in a fifth-floor apartment, so it's kind of not an option anyway. But I do think there is something really fabulous about plants. A lot of what I think is amazing about them is their ability to just be dormant and then, when the moment's right, to just spring to life. Like those tulip bulbs they're selling right now. Sure, one of them looks like a giant dirty garlic at the moment, but if you bury it in the frozen ground and let it sit there all winter, it'll turn into something gorgeous in the spring. Now, the tulip's ability to wait, 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 and then grow might make me happy, but it also has tremendous value. People can save seeds from year to year. Seeds from endangered species can be replanted and their numbers replenished. And because they can lie dormant and have pretty short generations, plants, or seeds, depending on how you look at it, can help us catch evolution as it happens, and that might help us deal with climate change. Here today to talk about that possibility is Steve Franks. Franks is an assistant professor of biological sciences at Fordham, and he's one of the scientists spearheading the dramatically named Resurrection Initiative, a massive seed-saving and growing project that they're hoping will help reveal how plants are evolving in response to global warming. Later on the show, we'll talk with media analyst Robin Anderson about greenwashing and consumer culture. But first, Franks joined me in the studio this week. Steve Franks, welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me. So tell me about the Resurrection Initiative. This is a project that we're doing. It's several scientists involved. We're really interested in climate change and understanding how species are going to be able to respond because we know that the climate is changing and we want to know if species are going to be able to evolve and catch up with this. Um, so to do that, what we're going to do is go out and collect seeds from a lot of species right now and hold them in storage. And then we can go in the future and grow them up side by side with those original collections and see how much they've changed and actually measure evolution. When in the future? Uh, several years. We'll be able to do this in a few years um, and also farther into the future, several decades from now. But we've shown in previous studies that evolutionary changes can happen to changes in climate in just a few years. So we'll be able to have some results on this very fast. So tell me a little bit more about this project. What sorts of things are you looking for? I guess what we're going to do, like I said, is we have a preliminary list of lots of different species, but a few that we're going to target. We're going to collect from all over the country all these seeds of all these different species, and then we're going to store them at a USDA ARS facility um, in, in Colorado, which is set up to store all these seeds. This is going to be a massive seed bank. And what's going to be unique and different about this seed bank is that there are other seed banks that are existing, but they're mostly for conservation purposes. So they collect from lots of different species, but often it's um, just maybe from a few places. We're going to collect in a specific way that allows us to test evolution. And the way that we're going to do that is we're going to collect um, multiple species from individual plants. And so we know that those all those individuals from an individual plant are, are genetically related. So that way we'll be able to use uh, genetics to understand evolutionary change, which will be different from you know other seed banks and other ways of doing this project. Now, tell me about the origins of this project, starting with the wild mustard plant in okay. California. Well, so this is exactly the wild mustard plant is something that I worked on when I was doing postdoctoral research there. And my advisor, Art Weiss, and I had realized that, that there was a drought in California, and they had seeds collected in the lab for other reasons before this drought. So this was an opportunity that we could take advantage of a natural change in climate, go out and collect the seeds from this mustard plant, which is growing naturally in California again, um, and grow them up side by side. And in doing this, we found 
that those plants after the drought flowered as much as eight and a half days earlier. And we saw because we used this technique of collecting the seeds before and after the drought, we could show that this was an actual true evolutionary change in flowering time. And that was actually the first study that showed a natural evolutionary change in a plant in response to a change in, in a natural change in the climate. How do you know that that was an evolutionary change and not just sort of a, an aberration? Right. Okay. Well, the reason that we know it's an evolutionary change is because we had the seeds collected before the drought. And then we gave them a full generation in the greenhouse where we just crossed those plants with each other. So that way we know that those lines from those plants are all genetically from plants that were before the drought. Then the ones that we collected after the drought, we did the same thing. We grew them up from a full generation in the greenhouse, crossed them with each other. And that way, we know that the only thing that's different about these plants is what's different genetically. We grew them up under the exact same environmental conditions. So we know that any change that we see in a trait is due to the difference in genetics and not to the difference in the environment. So uh, just to be clear on that, the environment drove the evolutionary change, that cha the natural change in the environment, the drought did. But what it did was the drought selected for those genotypes that were flowering earlier. So we know that when we took those plants from after the drought, this population had a higher number of earlier flowering genotypes. So that's the evolutionary change that happened. So this, the plant flowers earlier, what, what does that mean? The way that the mustard plants work is that when you put the seed in the ground, it germinates, it starts putting on leaves, and then it'll start to put out a bud, and those buds will produce flowers. Now, the mustard plant, like most plants, have indeterminate growth. So it's not like they go for exactly 17 days and then flower. It depends on their genotype, and it depends on their environmental conditions. So what happens is this is a little bit flexible in how they flower. So basically what this means is that after the drought, um, those plants when we grew them up under common conditions, naturally flowered earlier. And we know that that's genetic. And we also were able to do other studies where we could estimate the degree to which uh, this trait was genetic. And we know that a lot of variation in that trait is genetically based from that separate study. I guess I'm wondering also what in sort of the life of this plant in the wild does it mean if it flowers early? How does it help it to survive? Okay, well, the plants that flower um, early in drought years basically can escape the drought by flowering early. So they avoid the drought conditions. Plants that wait a long time to flower can do better under wet conditions because it's basically wet all year. In California, that's where it grows. If there's a wet year, it's wet late into the spring. And so that means those plants that wait to flower can get larger and they can produce more seeds. So it's an advantage to wait to flower under wet conditions. But if it's a drought year, then those plants to wait to flower are going to be in trouble because basically they're going to have run out of water. They're not going to be able to produce flowers. So the plants that flower early can escape the drought by flowering early. You mentioned that there are already a lot of seed banks out there, and a lot of us have probably heard of them in the context of, say, heirloom seeds or heirloom tomatoes. Why do you need a new one for this? The seed banks that exist are mostly for conservation, and they can be of natural plants or of crop plants, like you mentioned, garden plants. Uh, but the reason that we want a new seed bank to study evolution in response to climate change is that most of the existing seed banks haven't been collected in a way that optimizes the study of evolution. So a good way to study evolution is to collect from individual plants where you know that all the seeds from that plant are genetically related. And that way you can take advantage of a lot of genetic tools to study evolution. And furthermore, our 
um, study is going to focus specifically on species that are really good for studying evolution, so some species that have been studied in many evolutionary studies before. And also, the last thing is that we're going to collect very extensively. We're going to collect multiple populations throughout North America, and this allows us to look both over space and time at evolutionary change. So how would the seeds in the sort of more conservation-oriented seed banks have been collected? And also talk to me about natural seed banks and how they are inadequate. Okay. So uh, the seed banks that have been collected for, for example, conservation purposes often collect from just maybe one or a few locations. So that, uh, you know, sort of eliminates sometimes that spatial component. Like someone's garden. Like someone's garden or just, uh, you know, a convenient location for collecting these specific seeds. Um, so a lot of times the genetic diversity is a lot lower. We want to capture a lot more of the genetic diversity that's out there, for example. Um, another problem with these existing seed banks is that especially those for conservation really are specifically for that reason of conservation. So they want to hold on to those seeds in case the species goes extinct. So they don't want to loan out those seeds for people to do experiments, understandably. And the natural seed banks? And the natural seed banks, well, some really interesting studies have been done where they're able to actually, like, dig down into the soil, get soil cores, and get seeds from, for example, 100 years ago and look at traits that are different between those seeds and what we see now. And that's a really interesting way to go about it. But one problem with that is that those seeds that are still existing in those seed banks, um, they might represent only a small fraction of what was around before. And they could be a non-random sample. For example, maybe only those seeds that survived were the especially large and well-preserved seeds. And maybe those are the, for example, really late flowering seeds. So this doesn't really represent what the population looked like in the past. It could to some extent, but we really don't know because of the reason that a lot of that original sample is lost. So although that's a really good and interesting and unique way to go about it, really the perfect way to do it is to collect the seeds you know, in, in an organized and controlled way and then be able to collect again in the future and do these experiments where you compare them before and after environmental change, which is exactly what we plan to do. So if you depend on other people's seed collections or on what's already in the ground, you sort of just get a lousy sample. Uh, well, you potentially you can. You get a not as good sample as what we're planning on doing. Exactly. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. My guest on the show today is biologist Steve Franks, and we're talking about plant resurrection and what it can tell us about evolution and climate change. In a few minutes, we'll hear about how people are using climate change to sell products. But first, let's hear the rest of my conversation with Steve Franks. I was wondering when I was looking at all of this, um, this is probably kind of a novice question, but if you save seeds... Do they just let? Do they just last forever? How does that work? Yeah, seeds do not last forever, and that's one of the reasons that we're collaborating with this USDA ARS facility, um, this gene bank and genomics facility in Fort Collins, Colorado, because they're set up to exactly do that reason to optimally preserve seeds. So they know which seeds preserve well. They can store them under really good, very cold conditions, which maintains them. But even under these optimized cryogenic conditions, seeds can still, depending on the species, only last for, for example, maybe a few decades or 100 years or so. And so periodically, you have to take those seeds, grow them out, 
cross them and generate new seeds, but they're still from that original genetic stock. So you haven't changed them genetically, but you do need to grow them out to preserve them because otherwise the seeds don't last forever. They're living material, so eventually they're going to die. Tell me about the uh, the resurrection paradigm. How does that work um, on the ground or in the ground, I guess? Okay. The resurrection paradigm is a way for studying evolution. And so this is a technique that's only been done a few times before. So although we're really interested in understanding evolution and how it works, um, this way of doing it, like I said, hasn't been used very often. But the way that it works is you take genotypes that are around, then you let an environmental change happen. And this could be something that happens naturally in the field, like what we're focusing on, or it can be an environmental change that you induce under laboratory conditions. But then after that change occurs, you take genotypes from afterwards, like seeds of those plants. And then you grow up the ancestors, the ones from before, with the descendants, the ones after, under common conditions. Then any difference in the traits between those species you know is due to evolution in response to that environmental change. So that's the essence of the resurrection approach. Why do you call it the resurrection paradigm? That well, sounds very godlike. It does sound very godlike, I guess. The reason that we call that is because we're sort of metaphorically uh, resurrecting those seeds from er an earlier time to compare them with the descendants under common conditions. So that's why it's called that. Do you ever feel like a mad scientist? Uh, I, well, I have, you know, not only used these metaphors of re resurrection, um, but also talked about as if this were a virtual time machine, like as if we could go back in time to study them. So although, you know, metaphorically that sounds like crazy ideas, this is really something that we can do that can provide really useful information on what's going on with climate change and how we can respond to it. Why is it important to understand this stuff? I think climate change we know is occurring and is one of the biggest threats that we have to sustainability and to biodiversity. And understanding how species can respond to changes in the environment is really critical to determine how we can best respond to changes in climate. So I think it's very important to figure out how to mitigate changes in climate and reduce climate effects. But we also want to know how species are going to be able to respond so we'll know what to do about that. What would you potentially do about it? Well, for example, any critically endangered species that we know that don't evolve very fast in response to climate change, we would pay particularly close attention to preserving those populations, preserving those seeds. For other species like weedy species that we know could evolve or that this study might show can evolve fast in response to climate change, then we wouldn't have to worry about those particular species as much as maybe the other species that would. So this will basically what this will enable us to do is to target the species, target the locations and things like that that are most vulnerable and most susceptible to climate change. Target them and do what? Uh, will help in their preservation. I think that would be the main thing is to preserve them. Um, potentially, people have talked about moving around species in response to changes in climate, which is one way to go. But again, really the most important thing to do is try to alleviate and eliminate climate change as much as possible. That's really the focus. So another main objective is, of this program is really just to understand better how evolution works. Evolution is just a fundamental importance in biology. It's just the main process that we want to understand. So this is a really unique opportunity to get some more insight into ev how evolution is working. We're taking this unique approach of the resurrection paradigm, which hasn't been used before, and then we're taking advantage of the opportunity that the climate is changing in rapid rates. So when we put this together with some of the newly developed genetic tools, we're really getting much more insight into how evolution works. Is now an especially important time to be doing this? 
I think now is a critical and the perfect time to start this project. It's really a time when the climate change is accelerating. It's the time that we have the facilities to do this project, and it's the time that we're getting more and more genetic tools to understand how evolution works. So when you bring all these things together, it's the perfect time to start this project now. So how is all this going to work? How is this project going to work? Well, one thing that we're going to do is we're going to start by hiring a lot of students and technicians to go all around the country and start collecting these seeds. So that's going to be a great way for students and a lot of people to be involved in this project. What they will then do is they we will hire a, a coordinator to basically arrange all the logistics and things like that. People will go out. They'll have their target list of species. They'll learn how to identify them. They'll collect them. They'll GPS, record where the populations are, and then they'll send those seeds to Fort Collins, Colorado, where they'll be processed and stored. And then what we're going to do is we will have a board of people who will determine the people who will then have access to the seeds in the future to do these kind of studies that we have envisioned. So obviously the people that are involved in this project, like myself, will be able to do some of these experiments. But we want this to be available to the wider scientific community. So basically people will be able to put it request for seeds, um, and we will, to the extent possible, give people seeds so that lots of people can do interesting and fun experiments with this resource. This is a little speculative, but if you think, knowing what you do about plant biology, what do you think the world is going to look like in terms of uh, what's out there that's green in the next hundred years or so? I think in the next hundred years or so, if the climate continues to change, we're going to see a lot of dramatic changes. So we already know that the environment is really dynamic. Species evolve really fast in response to changes. So I think we'll see, and we already know that there's we're already in the midst of the largest extinction in recent history. So we know that a lot of species are already going to extinct. Even more are going to go extinct. I think a lot of things are going to change. And so a lot has to be done about it, including studying and preserving what we have now. When you were talking about sort of seemed to me like maybe the weeds were just going to take over. Is that what you anticipate? Well, I think to a large extent that may be true. I think we're going to lose a lot of threatened and endangered species and a lot of species that we, you know, we predict will be most likely to respond to changes in climate and other changes in land use and things like that are going to be more weedy species. So if we don't pay particular attention to conservation, that's exactly what we're going to have, a world of weeds. I guess we just call them weeds because they flourish no matter what anyway. Exactly. They they flourish no matter what, and, and oftentimes they're things that we're not as economically interested in, but they're often interesting as study species for sure. Now, I think this is really interesting because I'm interested in botany, but for people who are not interested in botany, how is this relevant like in terms of how we use or think about plants and our environment in general? Well, obviously, everybody depends on plants for things that we eat, for agriculture, things like that, and just things that we have around. Um, they're, they're really important for the environment. And so that's one of the reasons that we want to do this with plants. Also, plants, because they have seeds, they're perfect for this study. For other organisms, they're not as easy to store. But really, the key thing is this is going to give us so much more information about how evolution works and how all species respond to changes in climate. And so I think that's the general message is that's going to be useful um, sort of for general things like that. Let me ask you one more question, not about your project, but about something that people might be thinking about right now. Um, people are starting now to plant bulbs. And I was wondering if you could explain to me, first of all, what's going on with those bulbs in the winter? And second of all, what kind of resurrection is going on there? 
Sure. Well, that's an example of resurrection, too. A lot of plants can store some materials underground. So, for example, when it's really cold, like it is right now, the plants can keep their resources underground where they're protected. And then as soon as it starts to warm up in the spring, they can sort of burst forth and flower and reproduce. And so uh, this gives those plants an advantage by being able to store them. So this material that's underground, like you said, is sort of resurrected um, and enables the plant to grow early on in the spring. So is it just sleeping throughout the winter? Uh, It's basically a form of plant hibernation. That's exactly right. So what benefit or what's the benefit of doing that other than, you know, the pleasure of being outside in a garden when it's 33 degrees out? Well, I think because you get these really nice flowers early on in the spring. Um, It's good for the... The plants do this because that allows them to survive the winter, and it also allows them to flower early on in the spring. These are plants that are low-growing, so if they waited till longer, then all the trees above them would be leafed out. They wouldn't have as much light. So they can come in right at the early spring and flower and reproduce. Well, Steve Franks is an assistant professor of biological sciences at Fordham. Thanks so much, Steve, for coming in. Thanks again for having me. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Just after the show this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. On today's show, what to do when your pets are behaving badly or mysteriously. That's ahead at 7.30. But first, as we become more aware of the reality and immediacy of climate change, it's become important for companies that make and sell things to be, or at least appear to be, concerned about it and about their product's potential effects on the environment. The environment is very much on people's minds, and that means that going green sells, or at least looking green, a tactic that's often called greenwashing. Robin Anderson is a professor of communication and media studies at Fordham. She joined me in the studio to talk about consumer culture and environmental sustainability. I began by asking her to explain to me what greenwashing is. Greenwashing is the attempt on part of manufacturers or corporate America or a, a corporate image of any sort to get a idea out in the public spheres that a company um, or manufacturer may be more green than it actually is. So instead of possibly doing something to make their manufacturing more environmentally friendly, what they've done is to make the public relations make their corporate vision look more environmentally friendly. So I think one thing that you talked about in one article that I read um, was, I I believe it was KitchenAid, talking about how their designs, how their kitchen gadgets flowed from nature. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Exactly. Um, KitchenAid is the high-end line of uh, appliances from Whirlpool. And at the same time that Whirlpool uh, was being pressured by environmental groups to create appliances that were more eco-friendly instead of doing that or or working toward really new technologies for appliances. What Whirlpool, uh, particularly with their KitchenAid campaign, is do a series of very powerful ads that that made the association with nature. One was a stove. We took a cooking lesson from Mother Nature. Another was um, the the dishwasher that had the foamy inside looked like a waterfall. So these powerful visual associations are an attempt to associate positive uh, environmental practices in the mind of the consumer when actually the company wasn't doing anything. I think that's a pretty good explanation of how these ads work. Why do they work? They've been very successful in selling products. Why do we buy into them? 
I think they express a value that is uh, very much part of, of consumer value, which is a reverence for nature and an understanding, again, that we have uh, real environmental issues that we need to address. So they're speaking to us directly, and we accept that. It's very difficult for the consumer in this media environment to look behind those images to find out ways in which they really could make a difference to conservation efforts. The advertisements tell us, and indeed consumer culture, the attitude of consumer culture in general, is that that we need to look toward the sphere of consumption to solve our problems, and a consumption that's really driven by the beautiful advertising images. Now, I think one of the things that's really fundamental to these this kind of marketing is the idea that you can do good by buying stuff. What's wrong with that idea, in your view? If we had a, a very one-to-one relationship between the messages of the, of the companies that sold products um, and their claim to being natural or environmentally friendly, um, we might be able to make our choices based on that about the world we would want. The problem is... Um, any consumer needs to do an Im- enormous amount of research into the the company's vision and their practices um, so that they can purchase. And, and, and in that sense, we do have a lot of power as consumers. If, if we did that, we would make our purchases based on the type of world that we want. However, taking a broader picture of, of consumer culture and consumption, what we usually find is that the legislation that is needed and the actual social movement forward, the seeking of alternative energies, the creation of policies, is usually in a realm that's outside of consumer culture. And the public needs to understand, by and large, that that those kinds of discussions are what um, will, will help us find a pathway to protect the environment. We don't find those kinds of things in the ads. And oftentimes, the, the companies that dominate in the advertising realm now um, and the, the products that are out there, everything from cars to the oil companies, um, are very invested in the media through their advertising. And one thing that makes it very difficult for the public is to find alternative information on the mainstream media with regard to the policies we really need to transform our energy use. Let me ask you a very basic question. What, when you keep referring to consumer culture, and I think that's, you know, basically gives most of us sort of a vague idea of, you know, buying stuff, going shopping and stuff. But what do you mean when you say consumer culture? And also in your analysis, what is wrong with it in terms of the environment? Well, one of the aspects of consumer culture is that, you know, you're not only talking about the advertising, but you're talking about the the marketing behind the scenes, the large media buys. But you're also talking about a landscape of popular and media culture that has been closely tied and is now very much embedded within manufacturing and sales because of the penetration of advertising within our programming, within the ethos of advertising that exists um, now within uh, movies that have product placement. I think this is one of the aspects of consumer culture from that structural position. It's not only that we're actually literally buying products, but that there are consequences at, at all levels to thinking about ourselves as a democratic society because we have an array of goods to buy or thinking about ourselves as activists because we've gone after uh, and we really like a, a social causal advertising, so we take an action. So it's, so a, it's as a, it's consumers rather than citizens. Exactly. What a lot of um, uh, 
those in the public interest at foundations talk about that we've created a passive public because if we put our finger on the problem, well, we know we've got a, a global warming problem, can we find the solution to that in, in the purchases, in buying a diesel advertised, diesel clothes where the advertisement depicts global warming? And if we think, well, if they're concerned with that, maybe if I buy that, that indicates that I too am concerned with that. And we may think that people aren't that, that silly, but by and large, we find that, that people look for the solutions in the wrong areas of our society. What do you think should be happening here? What what would you recommend? Well, I think that there's a lot of hope and a lot of challenges to the realization now that the globe is heating up due to our contemporary modern society and the practices and the energy use there. Understanding that and acting um, in ways that will alleviate that opens up all kinds of of exciting possibilities to how we can do things differently um, and better in the future. Wind energy is something that's there. Wind turbines can supply enormous amounts of energy. So, so cheap alternative fuels are readily available. And I think that if we move toward as a society toward that and, and, and really put some resources into the continuing looking also for solar, geothermal, wave energies, that we can actually fix the problem. We can also get out from under the yoke, if you will, of oil and making our economy and our practices not only better for the environment, but in a way that would redistribute the resources in our society a little bit better. And I think the transformation of the energy industry is one thing that's, that's really in need of getting back into balance. Robin Anderson is a professor of communication and media studies at Fordham. From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us at FordhamConversations at WFUV.org. Fordham Conversations is available as a podcast at WFUV.org. It's also in our audio archive, which you can also find on our website. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thank you for listening and have a fabulous weekend.